Let's continue in prayer. Gracious Father, as we have just sung, you have been so good, you have been so kind, you've been gracious to us. And that goodness uh, was most clearly seen and is most clearly seen in your work of redemption, where you would send your Son to be our Savior, to die in our place for our sins. And Father, we pray that today that glorious truth would continue to move us closer to you, that we would be moved to greater expressions of repentance and faith and worship and trust. Father, we pray that as a result of our time together this morning, studying your word as your spirit moves and works, that we would be most fully convinced that we were created for you to live for your glory. I pray that that truth would be implanted upon our hearts and our minds, that we would wake up, that we would live each and every day in light of that profound truth that we exist for you. You've created us for your glory. Help us to live in response to that. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. You may be seated, and as you do so, please, again, open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Last week, our brother Matt helped us to think through and to process what is a a very weighty passage of Scripture in verses 14 to 22. We were reminded last week of just how easy it is, how prone we are to walk off into idolatry. We saw that idolatry, it can take hold in our hearts and our lives. It can be expressed in a variety of ways. Idolatry can sometimes be manifest and can be shown through our actions, like when we covet something and then steal it. For our, for ourselves, idolatry can be expressed in, in our attitudes, like when we blast our kids or we, we, we get excited and angry at our, at our co-workers or at someone driving on the road who dares to cut us off or do something that infringes upon the way that we thought our life was supposed to go, the way we thought our drive to work was supposed to go. Uh, idolatry can take hold in our thoughts and in our minds as we fantasize about some person or some object or some accomplishment that we believe will finally bring lasting peace and joy and contentment into our lives. Other times, idolatry can just sit and stew and fester in our hearts as we feed our jealousy, as we feed envy and lust on the things that we wish we had. As, as Again, as our brother Matt pointed out so helpfully last week, idolatry is devious, it's destructive, it offends God, it provokes Him to jealousy, it provokes Him to discipline us for our good. So it is so good, brothers and sisters, that we continually learn what it means to repent of it. To turn from it and to walk, as even as Dwight prayed, to walk in love. To walk in love towards God and towards one another. And so as we get a running start into our text for this morning, back up and look at verse 22 for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 22. This will just give us again a running start into our text for this morning. Paul asked the questions, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy. Are we stronger than He? Of course, the answer is no. Let's not provoke the Lord to jealousy. No, we are not stronger than He. And, and the good news is, is that God is jealous for His people. God loves His people. God loves His people, in fact, too much to allow them, to allow us to waste our time chasing idols. And again, this is for our good. We should be thankful for this because, as again, we'll see from our text from this morning, oh, friend, brothers and sisters, we have something so much greater to live for than cheap idols, than cheap idolatry. We have a calling that infinitely exceeds and eclipses any 
pitiful idol that we may want to chase or live for. And so now in verses 23 to 33, Paul, he kind of brings his arguments surrounding freedom and Christian liberty. He brings these arguments to a climax as he helps us to see that our ultimate priority, our ultimate good, your ultimate good is to live for the glory of God. Okay, that's, that's ultimately where we're going. So if you fall asleep and you don't hear anything else I say, you will know the conclusion to the sermon. That you're to live for the glory of God. That's how we're going to, that's where we're going to end. It's going to be a journey to get there though. So let's look now at verses 23 and 24 where Paul once again, he confronts the Corinthians. He confronts them in their efforts to hide behind their liberty or flaunt their liberty or use their liberty in the Lord as a covering, as an excuse to live self-indulgent, self-centered lives. So look again at verses 23 and, and 24. They were saying, all things are lawful, Paul says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Brothers and sisters, it is a sad thing when, when Christians, when we hide behind our liberty, because we are, again, we're called to something so much greater. So here in just these two simple verses, we see at least three things. Uh, if you want to jot this down somewhere on, on, on the paper that is in your bulletin, this may be helpful. Uh, number one, we see a popular and a pathetic slogan. Then we see a profitable and a practical rebuttal from the Apostle Paul to that slogan. And then we see a, a painful, a precious, and a pervasive command that affects every one of us. So first we see a popular and a pathetic slogan. What was the mantra of the day? What was the theme of the day? What was the slogan of the day? What did the Corinthians love to say? All things are lawful. All things are lawful. It's a, it's kind of a catchy slogan. It, it, it certainly appeals to our flesh. It has the appearance of truth because after all, didn't Jesus say in John 8, 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Yes to all these things. And yet, man, it completely misses the point. It entirely directs our attention to the wrong places and to the wrong areas. All things are lawful. All all things are lawful. Live your life motivated by this slogan and you will, believe it or not, you will miss out on love. You will miss out on knowing and learning what it means to love God and to love others. Because if this is your motto, if this is the slogan that rules your life, you will be so overly obsessed with yourself. Live your life by this deceptive slogan and you will, believe it or not, you will be continually inviting the discipline of God into your life because there are many things, brothers and sisters, many things like lust, greed, jealousy, revenge, hypocrisy, laziness, theft, lying, deception that God, our loving Father, has said is entirely off limits to us. All things are lawful. All things are lawful. And yes, is there an element of truth in this? In that there are many things that we as believers can enjoy. There are many freedoms that we have. There are many activities that fall within the category of lawful and permissible. Things that are not sinful. Yes. And because this is true, we naturally love to get as close to sin as we can. We, we, we naturally want to just get as close to the edge and to the fence as we can and to press our face into it. We naturally love to play the game. Is this technically a sin? Have you played that game before? I have. It's on some days, it's a rather delightful game to play. Hideous in God's sight, but delightful nonetheless. Is it technically a sin if I... And then 
fill in the blank with whatever it is you want to do? Is it technically a sin if I watch this movie? Is it technically a sin if I listen to this song? What if I don't listen to the words, but I just like the music? Is it technically a sin if I eat this or drink that? Is it technically a sin if I cheer for any football team with Tom Brady on it? And, and yes, it is. That's, that's not a gray area kind of issue, brothers and sisters. Uh, no, it is. That's fine. It, whoever you cheer for, God bless you. But is it, is it technically a sin if I buy a $50,000 watch? What about a $40,000 watch? What about a $10,000 watch? What about a $1,000 watch? At exactly what dollar amount does it stop being a sin? And I get it, there, there are times, there are times when we need to dig into a very specific issue and, and topic and question to discern if it is in fact a sin. But the point that Paul is driving at here is that there is a much better question to ask. There is a better way to live than, than being governed by, is it technically a sin? There's a better way. All things are lawful is not the slogan, is not the motto that you want to rule your life. Just because God has not specifically forbidden something doesn't automatically mean that you ought to rush towards it. There is a better way. So we move from a popular and pathetic slogan to now Paul's profitable and practical rebuttal. Again, in verse 23, he says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Stop asking the question, is it lawful? Start asking some better questions. Is it profitable? Does it edify myself and others? Is, is this helpful? Now, the word helpful that Paul uses here, it refers to one, uh, one's own spiritual growth and maturity. You know, when it, when, it, when it comes to your entertainment choices, when it comes to your financial decisions, when it comes to your sleeping habits, your friendships, your recreational pursuits, you can do a lot of things. But are they helpful to you as an individual, as you seek to grow in Christ, as you seek to become who it is that, that Christ would have you to be, as you, as you grow to know Him and to love Him more? Are these things that you can do helpful to you in that ultimate pursuit of knowing and, and loving Christ? And then at the end of verse 23, where Paul uses that word build up or edify, depending on your translation, here he has in mind, listen, not just yourself, but the people around you, your friends and, 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 and your family. Listen, your life and your decisions, I trust you already know this, it's not just about you. It's not just about you, whether you like it or not. How you live your life has a direct impact upon the people around you. What you do influences those that God has called you to love. How you use your liberty in Christ, it will either build others up or it will tear them down. When it comes to your life, when it comes to your freedom in Christ, we are called to think much bigger than just ourselves. And this, this then leads us to the next point in verse 24 where here Paul reveals and lays out for us, man, a, a painful and yet a precious, a pervasive command that affects every one of us. Look again at verse 24. Let no one... Okay, that is, that is categorical. Let nobody be in this category. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And as sinful creatures, we have been recoiling at this command for over 2,000 years. In our flesh and in our self-centeredness, we hate verses like this. My neighbor... I, I don't care about my neighbor. I can't be bothered with somebody else's spiritual well-being and growth. Am I my brother's keeper? 
Can I really be expected to look out for my neighbor and for the spiritual well-being? But listen, I'm just trying to take care of myself. I'm just trying to get through this life on my own. Listen, verses like this, principles like this, man, they attack our pride. They attack our pride. They attack our self-centeredness. They certainly call into question some of our pleasures, some of our hobbies, some of our lifestyle choices. And it's not as if the Bible only speaks to this issue this one time. It's not like we could somehow write off this one verse as this is the only time that, that, that Scripture, God's Word, speaks to this issue. No, there are many other places that we could go that say the same thing. For instance, like Galatians 5.13, which is for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the use of your Christian liberty, it's not ultimately about you. It's about how you can love, serve, encourage, build up others. So there are Certain movies, perhaps movies altogether, that you will need to avoid in order to love and care for those around you. There are certain foods, certain drinks that love may require you to gladly abstain from in order to support, strengthen, encourage the brothers and sisters around you. There are perhaps locations and entertainment venues that you may want to steer clear of in order to love and care for your neighbor well. In Christ, you may feel very free, very capable of enjoying this thing or that thing. But what What about those around you? What about your friend? What about your neighbor? What about the new believer who is perhaps less mature than you are? Where are they at? What will help them grow in their knowledge of and love for Christ? So Paul warns us plainly against hiding behind our Christian liberty. He warns us against using it as a covering for self-indulgent, self-centeredness. But instead... Paul calls us to see our liberty, to see our freedom in Christ as a gift from God that we can then use to serve and to bless others. Now we're gonna, we're gonna come back to that. We're gonna talk more about that in just a moment, but now this brings us to verses 25 and 26 where Paul, and I love this about the Apostle Paul. This is so helpful. This is helpful for me. I pray that it is helpful for you here now. Now, in verses 25 and 26, Paul helps us see the other side of the coin. There, there, there's two sides to this coin where, where Paul now emphasizes the liberty that we do have. And listen, Paul emphasizes the joy and the freedom that we have to make use of our freedom and our liberty in Christ. This coin does have two sides. It is a beautiful thing. When Christians use and enjoy their God-given liberty. And so for the sake of illustration and to use something that was very pertinent and relevant to the Corinthians, Paul now returns to this issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. Now before we get to the verses specifically, let me just remind you a little bit about the context and the situation. In Corinth, there were lots of idols. There were lots of so-called gods. There was this whole pantheon of, of gods that the Corinthians believed in and as such they had temples and places of worship all over the place. Meat, animals, was regularly sacrificed to these various gods at the temples. This was done to please the gods. This was done in some ways to even supposedly cleanse the meat from harmful demons that maybe had taken up residence in the animal or, or, or in the meat. And some of the meat that was sacrificed in the temples would eventually find its way into the meat market where it would be available for purchase, where anybody, anybody could just come by and purchase this meat. 
Well, believers who were saved out of this culture, who were saved out of this environment, they struggled with the question of whether or not they should purchase and or eat the meat that had been sacrificed in the temple. Now, with that in mind now, look at verses 25 and 26. Here's what Paul writes. Here is the word of the living God. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Why? For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I like these verses. These are verses I can get behind. You should like these Bible verses. We naturally resonate with this truth. Paul, he says, we see that Christian liberty, our liberties in Christ should be used and enjoyed. Listen, as a mature believer, you know that idols are not really God's. There is one God, one glorious, transcendent, eternal God. There is but one God. As a mature believer, you know that. As a mature believer, you know that demons don't really live in the meat. That, that when you eat the meat, there's not this danger that you're going to eat a demon in the process. As, as a mature believer, you know what Paul says. You know the truthfulness of what Paul says here as he quotes from Psalm 24 verse 1, which says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Can you eat the meat? Yes, you can. You can eat the meat. And Paul even goes on to say and to give some uh, more instruction here. He says, and don't raise questions. Don't waste your time asking unnecessary and unhelpful questions about where the meat came from. He says you can eat it and you can enjoy it and don't be that guy who walks around the meat market asking questions that shouldn't be asked. Questions like, well, you know, I would really like to purchase these all beef hot dogs, but first I have some questions that I need to ask. You know, I, I would really like to purchase this, this uh, ribeye, but before I do, can I just ask, has this ever been anywhere near uh, a local temple? Paul's like, why are you working so hard to overcomplicate this? If you would like to to go to the meat market and if you would like to purchase some meat do it and don't ask unnecessary questions see friend it's like this this is God's cow that you are about to eat it is his cow he created it this cow does not nor has it ever been nor will it ever be owned by an idol an idol is no such thing there is no other god this this is god's cow and god has said that you may eat his cow that's why he made them out of hamburgers so that you would eat them and you would enjoy them so listen so while while we want to ask good questions and we want to ask helpful questions when it relates to our Christian liberty. Questions like, is this profitable? Does this edify myself and others? Is this helpful? We also don't want to overcomplicate the use of our Christian liberty. There are many wonderful things in God's creation that He has created for us to enjoy and to use and to take delight in, which gives glory to our Father who created them for us to enjoy. That is why Saul exists. That is why chocolate exists. That is why your, your mouth and your nose and your tongue is able to receive and to discern different tastes and textures. It's a, it's a good, glorious thing that gives praise and honor to our Father when we enjoy them. So yes, Christian liberty can and should be enjoyed and utilized for the glory of God as we glorify Him for His good creation. But that's not all that Paul has to say. Paul says in verse 27 that Christian liberty can and should also be used for evangelistic purposes. Look again at verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go. Stop there for just a moment. Okay, so you want to go. You've been invited over to somebody's house for dinner, an unbelieving friend, co-worker, and you want to go. What should you do when dinner is served? Read on in verse 27. If an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat 
whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of of conscience. So someone says, Hey, my unbelieving neighbor has invited me over for a meal. Should I go? Do you want to go? Do you think it would be a good idea to go and to build this relationship and to get to know them and to love them for Christ and to be a good ambassador for Christ? You say, yes, I think all of those things are true. But what if meat is served and I don't know where the meat came from? Then what should I do then? Paul says, um, be a good guest and eat the meat. And enjoy the meat. Because again, who does the meat really belong to? Not the idol. It belongs to God. Who created it for, for you to enjoy. You see, it, it goes back to what Paul said a few verses earlier. In chapter 9, verse 22, where Paul said, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with with them in its blessing. So if an unbeliever invites you over to their house and you want to go and you want to build that relationship and you want to love them for the glory of Christ as an ambassador for Christ, then you are free. You are gloriously free to go and to eat and to enjoy and to build a relationship with them. You're free to be a good ambassador for Christ. This is making good use of the Christian liberty that you've been given. But that's not the end of the story. That's not where the text ends. What if you're at this unbeliever's house and another Christian is with you and they are perhaps newly saved And they are tormented in their conscience about whether or not it is right to eat meat that is sacrificed to an idol. Well, what do you do if you are at that meal and this brother or sister asks the question, So, where did you get this meat? Where did it come from? And it is revealed through the course of the conversation that this meat has in fact been sacrificed to an idol and now the conscience of this one that you are with sees this as a very sinful situation. Look at verses 28 and the first part of verse 29. Paul writes, But if someone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So we've seen thus far that Christian liberty can and should be used and enjoyed. Christian liberty can and should be used for evangelistic purposes. And now we see, and this is a point that now we're returning to, Christian liberty should at times be restricted out of love and preference for one another. And it is, not, it is not hard to imagine the scenario and the scene that Paul is painting here. You've been invited to this dinner party. There are believers and non-believers, Christians and non-Christians there, and you sit down to enjoy this nice ribeye steak that your host has graciously provided, and you are about to take a bite when all of a sudden a new believer leans in close and whispers to you, Wait! Don't take a bite! This meat has been sacrificed to an idol. What do you do in that moment? How do you respond? Should you turn to them or pull them aside and say, Would you be quiet? You are so immature. Listen, You are embarrassing me. This is not an issue. You are so silly. Listen, I'll explain it to you later. Maybe when you're older. Maybe when you're more mature. But for the moment, would you just be quiet and eat the meat? Is that how we are called to respond? Is that what would honor and represent the Lord Jesus Christ? No. Paul says not to eat the meat. Paul says to show preference, to show honor, 
to this brother or sister to respect their conscience and to restrict your freedom. Now, I get it. We, I, don't naturally like verses like what we've just read, verses 25 and 26, where Paul encourages us to, to restrict the use of our freedom here in verses 28 and 29, how, how Paul calls us to show consideration for the weaker or for the more immature brother or sister. And because this is the case, because we naturally recoil against these kinds of verses, I'll tell you, throughout the centuries, there have been many objections that have been lobbied against what Paul writes here. Let me give you three of them quickly. Okay, one common objection is this. Well, won't this offend my unbelieving host? Shouldn't I show preference to the unbeliever who has invited me over for dinner? Won't this hinder my unbelieving host's chances of getting saved? If salvation was a work of man, then you might have a point. But it's not. Salvation is a work that God must do in the heart of an individual. And listen, you are not being a faithful ambassador, a faithful witness for Christ, if you dishonor your fellow believer in front of your unbelieving host. In fact, listen to what Jesus said in John 13, 34. This this turns the paradigm on its head. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then Paul says this, or rather Jesus says this, by this, by this, by your love for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You don't evangelize the lost by showing disrespect for your brothers and sisters in Christ. What kind of testimony is that? Rather, we are called to love the lost and to show preference and love for our fellow brothers and sisters. Paul writes in Galatians 6.10, So then as we have opportunity, listen, let us do good to everyone. And then Paul adds this, And especially to those who are of the household of faith. We can and should show the love of Christ to the lost through our love for one another. Another objection to what Paul has written here is is this. Well, if I followed Paul's advice here, then I could never do anything because some Christian somewhere is offended by everything. So so what you're saying then is, I can't do anything. Because I I promise you, whatever I choose to do, there is some Christian somewhere across the globe who will be offended. Fair enough. There's an element of truth in that. Some Christian somewhere probably is offended by just about anything and everything that you might do. But that's not the point here. That is not the issue here. This is not about some Christian somewhere. The issue is about those believers, those brothers and sisters in your immediate sphere of influence. What about them? How can you love and honor and care for them? Listen, don't get bogged down with hypothetical questions regarding Christians that you will never know and never meet. That's not the point. The point here is that you strive to love those believers that God has placed within your immediate sphere of influence. That's who you are called to love. That's who you are to call to take into account with the ways that you use your freedom. One last objection that someone could raise and has raised is this, well, why do I have to cater to the weaker Christian? Why can't they grow up? Why can't they just grow up? Let's answer the first question. Why do you have to cater to the, to the weaker Christian? The answer is, you must show honor You must show preference. You must show love and concern to the weaker brother or sister if for no other reason than because Jesus commands it. 
Jesus commands us to love them, to serve them, and to sacrifice for them. If you are serious about following Jesus, you must love the weaker or brother, sister in the Lord. And listen, Jesus knows what is best for us. And it is Jesus' command and Jesus' will that we show this kind of sacrificial preference and honor for one another. Now, the answer to the second question of why can't they grow up? You're right. They should grow up. They should grow in their knowledge. They should grow in their understanding of their freedom in Christ. And perhaps, just maybe... You're the person to help them grow. Just maybe God will use you in their lives to have a conversation with them about these very things. There is nothing that prevents you from having a good, honest, serious, hard conversation with the believer whose conscience is burdened and troubled in ways that it shouldn't be. What if after this dinner party, what if after showing preference and honor to this fellow believer, you were to say to them, Hey, I'd love to get together with you soon. I'd love to talk with you about this issue. I I think that the Word of God gives us truth and principles that are immediately applicable to this issue of eating meat sacrificed to an idol. I'd love the opportunity to talk with you about this and to work through this issue together. And listen, you might, you might be a great help to them. You might help to inform their conscience and maybe their convictions will change. Or maybe it'll take more time. Maybe they still won't be quite where you're at. Maybe they still need yet more opportunity, more time to think this through, to grow in their faith, to grow in their understanding. But either way, you will have been faithful to honor them, to love them, and more importantly, to honor the Lord Jesus Christ and to respect Him. Next, in verses 29 and 30, here Paul asks now two questions, two questions that speak to the principle that Christian liberty should never be used as an excuse to slander another brother or sister in the Lord. In ver- at the end of verse 29 and in verse 30, again, Paul asks two questions. I think the first question that Paul asks is directed more for the stronger brother or sister to answer. I think the second question is more directed for the weaker brother or sister to answer. So at the end of verse 29, Paul asks this question, For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience. And then he asks another question, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So again, the first question, why should my liberty be be determined by someone else's conscience? Paul asks this first question so that the stronger brother may answer it with the truth and with the principles that Paul has already laid out. We willingly limit our liberty out of love and care and preference for our fellow brothers and sisters. And we do this gladly, remembering how Christ himself has selflessly served us. How Christ has loved us. But now Paul asks this second question. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. He asks the second question, so that as the weaker brother, if we are indeed the weaker brother, we may answer it, listen, by also choosing love. The answer to both questions, believe it or not, it is the Sunday school answer, love. It is, it is Jesus. It is to look to the example of Christ. It is to know His love. It is, it is to know His grace. That is the answer to both of, of these questions. And so the weaker brother or sisters whose, whose conscience is struggling, who does not see this issue as, as a gray area, Paul wants them as well to respond in love by refusing to slander, by refusing to denounce, by refusing to condemn 
another believer who acts or thinks in ways that maybe we're not comfortable with, that, that don't conform to our conscience and to our particular way of thinking on this issue. Because the fact is, we all have convictions. We all have beliefs about a great many things to rate, uh, re- related to all kinds of gray areas of the Christian life. And, and here's, here's the beautiful thing. You know this is true, but I'll say it anyway. We all think we're right. That's right. We do. We all think, or else we wouldn't hold this opinion. If I thought it was wrong, I wouldn't believe it. But I do believe it because it's right. Because it's right. Because I, I'm right. Um, we all would like to believe that we have, listen, we have single-handedly achieved the perfect balance of walking in wisdom, using our freedom, maintaining a clean, informed conscience, and avoiding the pitfalls of legalism and license. We are following the yellow brick road. And we are on it, and we see the path, and our way is right. It's like with driving. Everybody believes that they are the perfect driver. Everybody believes that, listen, anyone who drives slower than me is overly cautious, is boring, should have their license taken away. Anyone, anyone who drives faster than I do, they are reckless, they are destructive, they are most assuredly not saved. They are not saved. We all like to think that our personal standards on Christian liberty types of issues are good, are right, are balanced, are helpful. And so here's the challenge, brothers and sisters. This is the tension that we must live in. This is the tension that we are called to live in. We must hold to our convictions. We need to heed and listen to our conscience while at the same time not slandering and not arrogantly judging other believers who land differently than we do. And listen, you say, well, how do I do that? How do I walk that road? Let me give you one, I think, dominant principle that doesn't stand out necessarily here as much, although Paul will come back to this later, but it stands out certainly in Romans 14. We do this, we walk this tension largely by remembering that Jesus, not us, is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And we will all one day stand before Him and give an account of our lives to Him, not to one another. And again, for additional reading on this very specific topic, I commend Romans chapter 14 to you, where Paul goes into great length and discussion on this very point. But because it is true that we must all appear before Christ, because it is true that Jesus is Lord... And he will have the absolute final say on every issue. Every issue. Gray, black, white, whatever. Jesus will have the absolute final say on all things because it is true that we ought to live this life in light of that day when we will stand before Christ because of all this is true. Paul now has a few closing, glorious sentences that we must give our attention to. And these are verses that preach to us and reinforce to us the truth that we were made for the glory of God. Listen, you were made for this. You were made for this. Look at verse 31. Paul says what the first word is, So, that's a great word. It means in conclusion. When all has been said and done, here's what you need to know and remember. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. The reason why Paul can tell us to do anything and everything for the glory of God is, again, brothers and sisters, because... We were made for this. We were made for this. And that is a truth 
that I wish I could implant in your minds. It is a truth I wish I could imprint upon your heart. I wish I could bribe you, that I could manipulate you to think about and to believe and to meditate on every day of your life. Because I will tell you this, each and every day when you wake up, you are tempted to believe a lie. You are tempted to believe that you were created for something other than God. You wake up and you are tempted to believe the lie that you ought to give yourself to something or to someone else to find completion in life, to find joy and satisfaction. And yet the truth is you were not created to find joy and meaning and purpose in sexual sin. You were not. You were not created for that. You were not created to find life in greed and money and acquiring new, shiny, fancy, expensive things. You were not created to find joy in the praise and in the applause of other people around you. You were not created for these things. You will never be at rest until you come to find your rest in God for you were created for Him. To know Him and to love Him. You will never be at peace until you find your peace in God through Christ. You will never experience life, true eternal life apart from God because Jesus Himself defined eternal life in John 17 as knowing God. As being in relationship with God. So yes, yes, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God because you were made for this. You were made for this. The world has always thought it strange that Christians are at peace when we're being persecuted. The world has always thought it strange that we can be thankful in the midst of suffering. What is wrong with them? Nothing is wrong with us. We have found life in Christ. We have found contentment and peace in Christ and in His glory. People are like, what are you so happy about? You're ugly. You have an awful job. You're sick all the time. Your car broke down. You don't make a lot of money. Yes. But I have Jesus. And He has given me eternal life and I am cleansed in Him. I am loved in Him. I'm adopted into the family. Listen, I am, I am exactly one heartbeat away from being in the joy-filled immediate presence of God. And if you know Christ, you are too. You are, you are literally one heartbeat away from being in the presence of God. We can, we can live on that. We can walk through lots of trials and difficulties on that reality. Jesus could return at any moment. Galatians 5.22 says, The fruit of the Spirit, the result of having the Spirit of God at work in us, the result of knowing Christ, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. We don't have to live for the glory of God. We, we get to live for the glory of God. And if truth be told, 10 million years from now, when this little life is long ended, there will be no other way that you will wish you had spent this life. So as we close, I just want to give you a few thoughts to consider. The first is this. You cannot, hear me, you cannot live for the glory of God if you are rejecting the Son of God. You cannot live for the glory. It's impossible to honor God without honoring the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we said earlier, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus will have the final say on everything. And if you've never come to Him, if you've never surrendered your life to Him, then you are in the worst possible condition that you could ever be. You say, no, I'm not. I'm sitting here in a very nice air-conditioned room and I'm about to have lunch. No, I'm telling you, you are in the dangers of the fires of hell. And you are one heartbeat away, not from heaven, but from hell. One heartbeat away. And if you have never turned to Christ as Lord and Savior, if you are playing games, and this is all just to show, 
you need to repent today. You need to wave the white flag. You need to turn directions. And you need to plead for Jesus to forgive you and to love you and to cleanse you today. Jesus invited anyone to come to him who was burdened and heavy laden. And Jesus said, I will give you rest. You need to come to Jesus today. If you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, come to Him today. Now, if you are a Christian, the fact is, some of us need to stop hiding behind our Christian liberty. Some of us need to repent for the ways that we've become self-focused, self-centered, self-indulgent. Because why? God calls us to something so much better. God calls us to live for His glory, to follow the, the example of Christ. And listen, others of us need to glorify God by enjoying the good gifts that He's given to you. Some of us need to stop playing mindless Sorry, playing endless mind games. And we need to enjoy the good gifts that God has given. Listen, remember what Paul quotes from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Today, today, thank God and praise God for His good gifts. Today, you need to remember, you know, from that little song that we used to sing when we were kids, he's got the whole world in his hands. You know what that means? He's got the whole world in his hands. You don't. You need to relax. You need to take a nap. You need to eat a good meal. You need to praise God for it. He's got the, he is sovereign and he is king and we are called to know him and to love him and to worship him and you can be at peace in him today. You were created to live for the glory of God and by God's grace, because of Jesus' redemptive work, by the power of God's indwelling spirit, you can do this. You were created for this. Let's pray. Gracious Father, We are so thankful that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you have given us your word, that it may guide us and direct us and inform our thinking. You've been so good to us. And Father, I I pray that in in this matter of Christian liberty, Lord, help us to walk in love. Help us to walk in wisdom and discernment. Help us to know how to navigate this life so that we may praise you for your goodness. So that we may show love and preference and honor for everyone around us. That we may use the gift of the liberty that you've given to us to serve and to bless and to edify others. Lord, I pray if there be anyone here today who does not yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior... Draw them to yourself. May this be the day that they find life and joy and forgiveness in him. Do this for the praise of your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen.